The following presentation by Monument Wealth Management, LLC, is intended for general information purposes only. Please listen to additional important disclosures at the end of this presentation. Welcome to Off the Wall, a podcast aimed at helping you answer the question, what is the point of my wealth? And what steps can I take to make that vision a reality? With over 25 years of combined experience in wealth management, David Armstrong, co-founder of Monument Wealth Management, and Jessica Gibbs, vice president and partner at Monument, are skilled at helping people think through these challenging but important questions. Interested in learning more? Connect with us on Instagram, at Monument Wealth, and follow along at MonumentWealthManagement.com. Now, here are your hosts, Dave and Jessica. Welcome back to Off the Wall. It's me, Dave Armstrong, again, and I'm here with my co-host, Jessica Gibbs. Hey, everyone. And today we're excited because we have a great guest, Dr. Joy Leary. She's a licensed clinical psychologist, a behavioral finance consultant, and co-founder of Shaping Wealth, which is a company she co-founded along with our previous guest, Brian Portnoy, who was the author of The Geometry of Wealth. And in addition to Joy's work as a clinician helping clients, she helps members of the finance industry understand how psychology impacts their clients' financial decision-making and behavior, which is how we came to know Joy. And given the fact that we're off to one of the roughest starts in the equity markets for the year since back to the 70s, surfacing these issues related to investor behavior is very timely and important. So with that, Joy, welcome to Monuments Off the Wall podcast. It's great to have you on. It is a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you. You're welcome. And what I didn't mention, actually, as I was kind of reading your bio, is that what the three of us all share in common is a connection to the military. Jessica's husband's an army officer, but your husband is an Air Force officer, and you're getting ready to do a big permanent change of station orders. You're going over to Germany, which sounds really exciting. Yes. So enjoy that. We all know how stressful the military That's moves can be, right, Jessica? <laughs> Yes, having gone through one this year, definitely all my empathy and best wishes. Thank you. Let's dive in. Whether people realize it or not, how you view money or the rules about money that you follow or choose not to follow, those are rooted in your early life experiences. So can you talk about how what we learn about money early in life gets carried forwards into our adulthoods? And specifically, I'm interested in thinking about this from two perspectives. The first being for a successful adult who's built a portfolio, why is it worth that person reflecting on the money lessons or history that shaped them? And then two, from a parent or caregiver's perspective who's currently trying to teach a child about money, how does this come into play for them as well? Well, in our lives, our core beliefs drive how we see ourselves, how we see other people, how we engage with the world around us. And these core beliefs are formed through our experiences, our education, the things we learn from the cultural forces around us, and they inform who we are and how we show up in the world. And people form core beliefs about money. I often find it fascinating to ask people about their earliest memories of money. And I think oftentimes those memories are far earlier than most adults actually think. And oftentimes our earliest memories sometimes contain some traces of themes 
that continue to be patterned throughout our lives. So when we think about our relationship with money, in order to understand who we are today, we have to look back and take stock of where we've come from. What have our role models been? What were the attitudes we developed around wealth? What are the expectations that were placed on us that we internalized ourselves? What are the behaviors that become our baseline? And we think, well, this is just how the world works. So often our financial experiences in our families of origin have a huge impact on us going forward. So then someone gets to their adult life and like you said, they build a portfolio, but I'm a just huge proponent of self-awareness. So understanding, okay, how did I become who I am today? And then stepping back and asking, okay, is this who I want to be? Because these things that were set into motion early on, some of them may work very well for us, others not so much. And when we think about human behavior, we are wired for survival. So some things that are adaptive at earlier parts in our lives and in other environments, we just automatically carry them forward, but sometimes we outgrow them or they expire or they no longer fit our current circumstances and then they hold us back. So that's why I believe there's so much value in looking back. And why then is useful going forward is in order to build a bridge to where we want to go, we need to have awareness of where we are today. And then we need to look at the gap between where we are and where we want to be. And then think about, okay, what is working for me well that will help me reach the goals I've set for myself? How can I make sure I double down and keep those things going? What are some things I'm not doing now that I need to start doing? And maybe what are some things that I have been doing, but maybe are actually holding me back? I kind of want to ask, because that's fascinating. When you said your early experiences with money, I just had a quick flashback myself trying to remember what my very first experience was as a child. And Jessica, I don't know if you remember what yours was with your parents, but a lot of our clients, they all have kids and they're varying levels of ages, but Do you have any experience or data on what those ages are that kids would start to understand and realize what their parents are actually talking about? Because I remember back in the 70s, I'm going to really date myself here, but the gas crisis where you couldn't get gas was odd or even based on the last number of your license plate. That's when you were allowed to get gas. And that's one of my early memories of money. But I don't know if that really imprinted anything on me other than I just remember it. Is there like an age that people should be aware of that their behavior and what they're saying in front of their kids is starting to be absorbed and imprinting on them? So I don't know that there's a specific age. I think it is important for parents to always be conscious about what they are communicating and messaging to their children. And I think the rule I would give is earlier than you think. Kids pick up 
on so much more than we give them credit for. Even if they don't understand some of the language that you are using, because of survival, they are wired to read their caregivers very, very closely. So when a caregiver is in a state of distress, like a child is going to understand and recognize that. And sometimes conversations that couples may say, well, we're not going to talk about this in front of the kids. You don't know what they are overhearing or not. But if you are carrying around stress, even if you're not talking about it out loud, kids pick up on that. It is interesting. I'm thinking like, I'm like, okay, what are some of the earliest money lessons that like I learned? And then also kind of tied to this is like, what's the value of money? And like, what do you value? Which we'll talk more about financial well-being and things like that. But I think about one of my grandfathers, he always said something basically, how the most important investment you make in yourself is like in your education, and in your brain. So get a really good car that's going to protect you in the case of an accident. Like that is worth the money because the most important investments you've made is in your education. So even to this day, through the generations, we value having a good, sturdy car. Exactly. It's just interesting how, I don't recall him ever saying that to me, but clearly it imprinted on his children, which then passed that. They also talked about that with me, you know, my parents. So I guess being aware of maybe the lessons that shaped you or things that you experienced in your childhood that you actually do the opposite because of how your childhood was. That's something I notice a lot between my husband and I and how we think about money is sometimes it's not just what worked for you in your childhood, but what didn't work and what you are trying to do differently. And then also, yeah, I have a two-year-old son, so I can definitely concur that even at two, he models so much and absorbs so much of what we do. Families all develop unspoken rules about all kinds of things. And what an unspoken rule is, it's kind of an agreed upon norm that isn't explicitly stated, but everyone kind of goes along with it. Some examples are, we don't talk about fill in the blank, or we always do X, Y, and Z. And no one questions that. And all families developed unspoken rules about money. And they're very related to core beliefs. So that example you gave, that drives the way you approach education, financing vehicles, those kinds of things. And those things are just so, so powerful. So let's switch gears. So, I mean, as those of you who are listening to this podcast, you may or may not know, I'm a certified financial planner. And so I have heard people equate the idea of working with a financial planner in particular to going to the dentist. It's like something that they dread and they put off doing or they know they should be investing, but like, I don't want to dive into the financial planning. It's something I've put off. It's something that we've heard a lot when new clients come to work with us at Monument. So tell us one, why do people lack momentum and drive to start creating a wealth plan or a financial plan? And then two, why is creating a realistic financial plan and sticking to that plan so hard for people? I always want to be curious with people. If there's something you are avoiding, questioning why that is. And I think for some people, when it comes to managing their money, this is a very emotionally fraught thing. So it can be anxiety provoking. Some people may avoid it because it is a topic that they don't feel super confident or competent in. So then going and meeting with an expert, that may be 
a reminder. And when I think about the emotion, the common emotions that are wrapped up in people's financial experiences, anxiety is top of the list, but also shame. I think many people can look at their lives and be like, oh, I made this mistake or I should have done this different. And that's why I think it is so crucial that when we are talking about the human experience of money, that we are engaging with empathy because money is messy. This is a complicated, fraught topic for everyone. Even I work professionally with a lot of advisors and they have their own money stories that they need to work through and work out. This is a challenging thing. It's not just about math. So I think sometimes it's human nature to avoid things that make us uncomfortable. And I think there is a level of uncomfort with this. When it comes to planning for the future, sometimes that feels scary. So a way to defend against that fear is sometimes to avoid that. That's an interesting statement because Jessica's right. Sometimes people do feel like it's coming to the dentist. And your perspective of anxiety and shame can be these powerful forces that keep people from wanting to engage and actually get a plan or talk to a professional and that it's not just about the math. I think that that is a great sidecar to something that most people are experiencing right now in our industry. And I'm sure you're seeing it as well with the advisors that you work with. But the industry is no longer about just the math. People aren't interested in the value proposition of, I'm really good at math, so I can run a great portfolio and I use big words and this is complicated, so let me handle it for you. The value proposition just isn't there anymore. What people really seem to be seeking out, and this is our experience, Jessica and I and the rest of the team, is that people really are coming in and they're seeking the actual advice that has so much more to do with managing wealth than just the portfolio or just the math. And I'm assuming you're probably seeing the same thing from the people that you're working with. Absolutely. And a really skilled advisor is adept at understanding the psychology of money. Understanding that when you are talking with an advising client, you aren't just talking about what they have in their bank account. You're talking about their legacy, what they're going to leave behind. You're talking about what their plans are in the event of unforeseen circumstances or serious emergencies. You're talking about the education of their children. You're talking about what they want to leave, how they want to live their life today. Sometimes you're talking about death. You're talking about divorce. You're talking with couples who are experiencing significant conflict and tension around this topic. So it isn't enough just to be having a conversation about some numbers that you've plugged into a spreadsheet. So, I mean, Joy, tell me if I'm wrong on this, but it sounds like if you are willing to do the work to answer some of these questions, like dig into some of these things that you're talking about, you're more likely to have a more realistic plan and one that's actually one that you're going to stick to. Basically one that's really based in your reality and your experience, and that's going to make it easier to actually execute on. 
it's so important when we think about our financial lives to really be tethered to our values and our why, and not just aspirational values. Sometimes people, you ask them, well, what's important to you? And they'll spout off some nice sounding things. But then I say, okay, let's look at your calendar and let's look at your bank account, because I think those things tell the truth about our priorities. How are we really spending our time? What are you doing with your resources? And if there's a disconnect between, again, who you want to be and who you are now, then have a conversation about what recalibration needs to happen in your life to be more aligned with becoming the best version of yourself. I want to dig in a little bit more on this idea of defining financial well-being for yourself. So I really like how you view health, that it's not just physical, but it's holistic in your mind. It encompasses physical, emotional, spiritual, and financial well-being. And so I want to dig in on this idea of financial well-being because, as we were just talking about, how everyone answers that question of how do you define financial well-being for yourself, it's different. It's just like asking everyone, what does being physically healthy look like to you? Everyone's going to have a different answer to that. But some of these questions that you're servicing are they're very meaty questions. So how do you go about if you don't know how to answer these questions for yourself or like you have a vague idea, but it's not really that specific? How do you go about actually answering these questions, defining financial well-being for yourself, which obviously, as we were just saying, can help you better direct your decision making? One place that my mind goes is The truth is sometimes people have a difficult time starting with what they do want. When that is hard, start with what you don't want. We talk a lot about financial goals. Okay, if that's hard to like really dial in and get specific and come up with something measurable, start talking and think about what do you know for certain you don't want in your life? What do we need to avoid? And that can be a useful place. Now, when I'm thinking about what financial well-being is, I'm thinking about safety and freedom today and tomorrow. So it's having the ability to pay your bills and maintain control over your daily expenses, having that sense of safety and security, knowing that If an emergency comes up, you're going to be able to deal with it without it completely upending your life and creating all kinds of stress. It's being able to achieve your financial goals, being on track to meet some clearly articulated goals, if that's what you've been able to do. And finally, what we talk about at Shaping Wealth is this idea of funding contentment. So having the flexibility to really pursue a meaningful life. And what constitutes a meaningful life is different to all of us. Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of times when we meet people through the course of our job every single day, there's different levels of wealth. But the one thing that remains constant across all the people that we meet is that we like to say money can only go one of four places. They can spend it in their lifetime. And then to the extent that there's anything left in the bank after the second of a couple dies or the one person dies, you can leave it to friends and family. You can designate it to go to charity. And in some cases, it goes to taxes. 
And believe it or not, there are actually some people who have said to us, I'm okay paying taxes, but that's generally not the case. And we often see people not think through exactly what you're talking about, which is funding their contentment and ensuring that they have safety and freedom. And they actually run into a different set of problems, which is interesting to us. And I just want to get your take on this. But some people with levels of wealth, they forego funding their contentment. And maybe that goes back to what you were talking about, the early imprinting in your childhood. If you remember your parents struggling or anything like that, that imprints on you and you've got this wealth and you're not funding your contentment, but the modeling can show that you are foregoing your personal contentment in order to enrich your children at a level of wealth that they're frankly not aware of when you compound out just a simple growth rate for them of what their kids are going to inherit. Have you come across that or do you have any sort of insight into how people should maybe change their perspective or at least recognize that issue? Well, I think what's useful to look at is really focusing on can you hold both the now and the later? Because I think when people get themselves in financial trouble, they are either favoring and indulging their present self too much, or they are not allowing themselves to enjoy and savor because they're always so focused on, I won't have enough for tomorrow. And then that's how they live their whole life. So understanding where based on your experiences, you kind of are on that continuum of, okay, am I definitely a today money person or am I so focused on tomorrow? And how do we find that middle ground? How can it be both and? And what I find with people who sometimes have had experiences of financial trauma or a lot of scarcity, there can be the sense It is as though their brain can't refresh if they get to a place where they are safe and they do have resources and they do have, quote, enough to do some of the things that would allow them a little bit more comfort in their lives because they're so focused on saving, 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 saving. And if that is you, I think those things run really deep. So having a real conversation with an advisor about that, and in some cases, working with a clinician, potentially seeking financial therapy is warranted in those circumstances. That's interesting because in order to address those concerns of where's the balance between today and tomorrow, now you do have to get into the math a little bit. You do have to get into the spreadsheets and you do have to get into the modeling. So you'll never get away from the need to do some of the math and do some of the more. But what I just heard you say was that comes so much later after you figure out, this is how we like to say it, what's the money for? The plan has to come after the connection and getting to know a person because financial plans are not one size fits all. Because who we are, what we want, what we're comfortable with in our relationships with money, that is a very individual thing. So it's so important that advisors aren't starting with assumptions and superimposing their plan on what priorities should be 
what decisions quote should be without really asking the person sitting in front of them, who are you? What is your story? And what do you want the rest of your story to be? Because when it comes to people's financial lives, we really want to be empowering them to take authorship and using agency where they have it to build the life that they ultimately want to have. Yeah, you could flip that around and be for someone who's listening to this who is looking for an advisor. If you meet with someone, because it's really hard when you are got a gazillion advisors in the world and you're trying to assess who's going to be a good one, who should I trust most importantly, because you're ultimately choosing to trust someone to manage your money that you've built. You could take this as a way of if you're assessing an advisor of like, how do they first approach the conversation with you? Are they just give me your statements and here's what your asset allocation should be? Or are they actually taking the time to get to know you? Yes, I think the relationship really matters. In some way, there's a parallel here with the work I do as a clinician in psychotherapy. I explain to people when they first come to me, I say, Research shows that for a therapeutic outcome, therapeutic alliance, so that relationship and connection with the professional you're working with matters more than just about anything. So I say, what is most important is not that you work with me, but that we determine if I'm a good fit for you and that we ultimately help connect you with someone who you feel comfortable going to, who you can play with all cards on the table, who can really help you with who you are today and what you're wrestling with. So I think it's valuable for advisors to know, okay, these are the kind of people that I work best with. I have colleagues. Professionals shouldn't try to be all things to all people. If you are trying to be, and none of us should in any area of our lives, because we aren't being our authentic selves, and then we aren't showing up and serving anyone super well. So know who you are, be comfortable not being everyone's cup of tea, and know that when you ultimately find someone who's not a fit, having resources to connect them with. And then on the client side, remember, you are the consumer, You get to choose. I know it can be overwhelming. I say, when I have friends and family who are looking for a therapist, I'm like, oh, it's the worst. Because just (laughs) like advisors, there are a lot of people who aren't great in the profession. So give yourself permission to sometimes treat it like dating. You want to get a sense of what it's like to talk with, engage with a few people and think about, okay, where am I comfortable? Where do I feel that there's a foundation that I could build upon in terms of trust with someone? What Jessica was saying earlier, I summarize it this way, which is when anybody can call themselves a financial advisor, everybody does. And there's a big spectrum of people out there. It doesn't make any end of the spectrum better or worse. It just means that there's a whole lot of fit and not fit in that spectrum with people. And you use the analogy of dating. So I'm going to run with that one for a little bit. But what are some of the signs that people can use when they're meeting an advisor for the first time for their first date, that they know that this is not going to be a good date? What are the 
bad shoes, chewing with your mouth open, talking about yourself. What are some of those signs that people will see that will give them an indication that they're not in the right fit? Absolutely. That's a great question. I think first and foremost, trust your gut. Trust your instincts. There is something deep in us when we have initial interactions with someone, even sometimes over email or over the phone, you're like, uh. usually if we override our instincts, it doesn't turn out well. When I'm thinking about the best advisors that I know that I would send my friends and family to the advisor I work with, I am thinking about someone who's very curious who's asking me a lot of questions, open-ended questions. Someone who's allowing me to do more of the talking rather than talking at me. Someone who has the spirit of a teacher so that when I am with this person, I'm leaving knowing a little bit more, but in the teaching, never feeling like it is condescending, Also, it is so important that you are comfortable sharing the full picture. Now, you don't have to spill your full story to someone the first time you meet them. And actually, it's a good sign if you don't do that, because we don't want to indiscriminately open ourselves up to someone that we don't know. But if you have a sense of, well... There are some things that I know I would never tell this person because I bet they would judge me or I don't know what they would say back. That's something to pay attention to. And the nature of any kind of relationship, if it's professional, whatever it is, you are two imperfect humans. So there's inevitably going to be a time where the person you are working with is going to get it wrong. They're going to step on your toes What really matters is not that there are moments of disconnection within the relationship, but that it is a person that you feel comfortable and confident going to and saying, wait, actually, that wasn't quite right. Or I need you to know I had kind of a negative reaction to that. Because if you can't say that out loud with someone, those feelings aren't going to go away. You're going to swallow them. It may calcify into resentment. And then it sours the relationship at some point. So you need to feel comfortable engaging with this person. Also, I think money is a complex topic. So feeling comfortable and safe asking questions, not telling yourself, well, if I ask this, They're going to think I'm stupid or something along those lines. So you want to be with someone who is also just respecting you as a human, as a peer, as a fellow card carrying member of the human race. I think all of those are really important when finding that right fit. A lot of times when we meet clients for the very first time, they are very likely to be already in a relationship with another financial professional. They've come to the conclusion that it's not a good fit and they're looking for something different. That happens with us a lot. The first thing when somebody brings up to me about their financial advisor relationship, my first response to them is, hey, do you like that person and do you trust that person? Because if you do, over 90% of the relationship is on solid ground. 
it's like you said, there's the mistakes or the stepping on toes and every now and then those things happen. But at the end of it all, if you like them, trust them and they're giving you good advice, that's a huge component of the relationship. But one of the things that we spend a lot of time talking about, Joy, you said something really interesting. So I'm going somewhere with this, but we spend a lot of time talking to people about their behavior when the markets are down or the markets are really volatile. And we say, listening to your survival instincts is probably not a really great idea for you to be paying attention to because your caveman brain isn't a good fit for the decision-making process with your finances. However, you actually gave a great example of when you should listen to your caveman brain. You should listen to your survival instincts. And that is when you're talking to somebody for the very first time and are your survival instincts kicking in? Are they telling you like, this isn't a good fit and you don't want to override those things? So there's my asterisk to my don't let your caveman brain (laughs) drive decision-making in the financial process. That's actually a really great example of when it is appropriate to pay attention to that. It's always interesting thinking about, well, how did you start to work with the person that you're working with? And sometimes it's like, well, this is the person my dad worked with, or this is the person my partner picked. Then it just becomes default and people think, well, I don't want to go through the work of changing. If you are hiring someone to help you and it is a subpar relationship, ask yourself, What is keeping you from breaking up with your advisor if they are not a good one? Because at the end, you are the one getting hurt. And sometimes people don't like the confrontation of saying, actually, I'm going to find someone else. And then they tell themselves the story of, well, I don't want to hurt someone's feelings. Or again, you are the client. You are empowered Whoever you are working with, they can take care of themselves. You need to take care of yourself because in the long run, you are going to have to live with the natural consequences of your choices if you ultimately stay in a relationship with an advisor who isn't That's interesting. I will start to wrap this up by just bearing our soul a bit. Okay, here's a little bit of the look behind the curtain of wealth management. And this is a really true statement. I like and care about every single one of our clients, much more than just a superficial feeling. I like and care about every single one of our clients and all their friends and family, everybody that's involved with this. If one of them came to me and said, I don't think this is a good fit, I would like to find a new advisor. First, I would try to figure out why is he listening. But if I read it was unsalvageable, I would immediately say, please let me help you find a new advisor. I know everybody in this town that does this business. I know where all the bones are buried. I know everybody's professional reputation. And I mean that. So I'm going to turn that on its head and say, if somebody who's listening to this feels like they are in a bad relationship with their financial advisor, they should ask that question first and see what the advisor's reaction is. If they said to their advisor, I feel like I need a little bit of a change of pace here. I just like I'm sure people change therapists and doctors and dentists all the time. Can you help me find an advisor that would be a really great fit for me? If they hang up the phone on you, then you know for sure what kind of relationship you have with them because somebody who really does care with you would say like, I'm disappointed that you're leaving and that's a shame, but absolutely because I care about you, I will help you. Let me introduce you to some great people who I think you'll like. That is a phenomenal litmus test because then you see what is the motivation there? Is it ultimately your financial well-being? Or is it their bottom line? 
And I'm telling you, if somebody said that to me, I would be really, really bummed, really bummed, but I would help them. So with that, (laughs) thank you so much, Joy, for joining us. I'd encourage everyone to check out Joy on Twitter. Her handle is at Joy Leary, P-S-Y-D. Leary is spelled L-E-R-E. And also subscribe to her blog called Finding Joy. She writes some really beautiful pieces on there. I had a chance to poke around at a couple of them. And your writing's really lovely, Joy. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure chatting with you today. Thanks for sharing your platform. Yeah, Joy. Thank you so much for coming on Off the Wall. This is really great. So thanks again. Take care. The previous presentation by Monument Wealth Management, LLC, Monument, was intended for general information purposes only. No portion of the presentation serves as the receipt of or as a substitute for personalized investment advice for Monument or any other investment professional of your choosing. Different types of investments involve varying degrees of risk, and it should not be assumed that future performance of any specific investment or investment strategy or any non-investment related or planning services, discussion, or content will be profitable, be suitable for your portfolio or individual situation, or prove successful. Monument is neither a law firm nor accounting firm, and no portion of its services should be construed as legal or accounting advice. No portion of this content should be construed by a client or prospective client as a guarantee that he should will experience a certain level of results if Monument is engaged or continues to be engaged to provide investment advisory services. A copy of Monument's current written disclosure brochure discussing our advisory services and fees is available upon request or at monumentwealthmanagement.com.